and welcome to Burn It All Down. This is Lindsay Gibbs here, and I am so excited to be joined by Andrew Marinus for this week's interview. Andrew is a esteemed author and the special projects director of Vanderbilt Athletics. He is here today to talk about uh, his new book, Inaugural Ballers, which is the story of the 1976 USA women's Olympic team, but also just a great read about the history of women's basketball in general. And I'm somebody who follows women's basketball closely, but still learns so much reading it and I'm going to have to read through it. A couple more times to like make sure I got everything. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Lindsay. This is going to be a, a fun interview. I know I love your podcast so much. So this is a great opportunity. Let's just start. What drew you to this story? Sure. Uh, well, there's sort of a, a longer answer and then a real specific answer. I'll give you both <laughs> if that's okay. So, great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is my fourth book, and I, what I try to do is write books that deal with sports and social issues uh, for both teens and adults. My first book was called um, Strong Inside. It's a biography of Perry Wallace, who was the first black basketball player in the SEC. Uh, My second book, Games of Deception, was on the first U.S. men's Olympic basketball team that played at the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany. You know, so those books were dealing with racism and anti-Semitism, fascism. Um, Third book, uh, Singled Out, is a biography of Glenn Burke, who was the first openly gay Major League Baseball player. Uh, And so I was looking for another story that would allow me to write about sports, which I love, and history, uh, which I love, but also uh, an interesting social issue. And so this one, with the team uh, playing at the 1976 Olympics, allowed me to set their story in the context of the women's rights movement. And at the time I got started, I knew if I finished by 2022, uh, that it could come out in conjunction with the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Uh, So those were some of the bigger picture uh, thoughts in my head. But specifically, I was traveling around to schools talking about uh, the men's Olympic basketball book, Games of Deception. And I remember at a middle school in North Carolina and at a middle school in Kansas, uh, students raised their hand and said, well, what about the first women's team? You know, and I was really encouraged that uh, middle school students and high school students were asking that question. And uh, it really was obvious uh, (laughs) once they asked the question that that was a story that I'd be interested in writing. And it, in a way, it kind of uh, hit home to me that, you know, I was part of the problem. Like, here I am writing about sports, but it's all been men's sports so far. And part of the inequities that we still see are in terms of media coverage. And so you could include, to say that includes books about women's sports. And so I was really excited, um, try to do my part, you know, to tell a story about the history of women's basketball and this team specifically. Absolutely. And it's funny because... Most of what I knew about this time was from Pat Summit's uh, autobiography and, mm-hmm. and from reading that, you know, but one of the things that really got me is like this team in particular doesn't get that much attention because it didn't win gold. It was won, won the silver medal, right? Which right. we think of that uh, these days as a big failure for women's basketball, right? And so I thought it was really interesting to focus in on this team of trailblazers, um, you know, and, and kind of put it into context. First, I want to go back because I think a lot of people and myself included, like, aren't that well versed on kind of the history of women's basketball. And it's not something we've talked on the show a lot about. But your book, which you call them young adult books, right? Yeah. And that's the publisher is a young adult publisher, but I sort of feel like they're books for anybody. You know, hopefully you felt that way that, you know, it's not dumb, dumbed yes. down or, 
overly simplified. They're just books that you're trying to get uh, young people interested in reading through sports, but I try to write them in a way that adults will like them just as much. And that's what I was actually going to say. Like, don't be kind of scared off or anything by that kind of like young adult title or whatever, because I, nothing about this seemed like it was not written for mm-hmm. me. You Good. know, <laughs> <If> I'm someone <laughs> who, who follows this closely. Uh, so it, it was really great. But take us back to um, what you learned about the origins of the women's game. Cause I think everyone's heard of, you know, Naismith and, and everything, but how did women start playing basketball? Yeah. You know, people have heard the story of James Naismith and the peach baskets at Springfield college. And what I found out is almost immediately uh, from that very first game in December, 1891, there were initially there were women watching those games. So there was a, an elementary school, near Springfield College, uh, which was known as the YMCA Training School at the time. And there were school teachers that would go for a walk at lunch and they could hear the commotion in the gym and open the door and walked in and like, what is this? These guys shooting a soccer ball at a, at a peach basket, you know, and they were fascinated. They were the first basketball fans were these women teachers at a school. And they would then came every day at lunch to watch these games. And pretty quickly, within a week or two, they asked James Naismith if they could play too, you know, and he said, sure, why not? And um, problem was they were the only women in the world who had ever seen or heard of the game of basketball. So <laughs> who were they going to play against? Uh, and so they, they arranged a game against some of the, um, you know, uh, staff at the school and the wives and the girlfriends of the, uh, the faculty there. And so there were women playing basketball uh, from the very beginning. And then there was a woman who's sort of the equivalent, the woman equivalent of Naismith named Senda Berenson, who was a physical education teacher at at Smith College. And she met James Naismith at a PE conference uh, within a year of the game being invented, uh, said that she was looking to introduce team sports at Smith. There weren't really any team sports for women there at the time. And he said, well, there's women playing basketball in Springfield. Well, you know, why don't you try this? And so pretty quickly she became you know, the most prominent woman advocate for basketball was writing uh, a set of different rules uh, for women, um, books that were published, uh, introducing the game to women. So, you know, dating back to the 1800s, uh, there were women playing basketball. And it wasn't like because the Olympics uh, finally offered women's basketball tournament in 76, that basketball was any sort of recent thing (laughs) for women. It it had been going back all the way since the beginning. Um, One thing that I thought was interesting was you saw ebbs and flows of the game's popularity and just the acceptance of it um, that mirrored pretty closely with other women's rights issues uh, and, and waves of feminism in the country. You know, so uh, the 1920s, women's basketball was really popular around the same time that women were, you know, gaining the right to vote. Then things become a little bit more uh, conservative socially in the 1930s. You had women's uh, basketball teams shut down at colleges and high schools around the country. Then in the 1940s, you know, Rosie Riveter uh, building an airplane, how could you tell her she couldn't play basketball? And so you started to see the reemergence of women's programs, particularly in the AAU, um, and very popular, successful teams and players, sort of the first generation of women's basketball stars, uh, people that, you know, players that people had heard of, uh, like Nira White uh, here in Tennessee. Then in the 50s, society gets more conservative again, and you start to see women told that they shouldn't play basketball. And then finally, things turn again in the, in the 70s with fight for ERA and Title IX coming along. And that's when you see uh, basketball introduced at the Olympics in 76. 
Yeah, it's really interesting, like the ebbs and flows, and I've been thinking about it recently. There was actually a Wall Street Journal piece out just last week. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but talking about the decline in participation in girls' mm-hmm. and women's basketball. And one of the reasons cited was, like, people are worried it's not feminine enough. And I was like, are we going back in time already? Like, it's just, like, it's, it's so hard, you know. Of course, we're in a much better place than we were, but um, – it is startling how these things become ingrained. And once you start to overcome them, the like fear seeps like right back up to the surface. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's never just a straight line of progression, you know, steps forward and steps backward. And yeah, it's true that women's basketball and girls basketball participation rates uh, have declined as other sports like soccer and volleyball uh, have you know increased. And there's a lot of reasons for that that relate to race and sexism, you know, uh, at the heart of a lot of it. Yeah. So I want to go back because there was always this backlash. It's not an accident that women's sports have been marginalized, right? Like there have been conscious choices throughout history to continue to marginalize women's sports. So you talk about like the Cal and Stanford who played like one of the first intercollegiate games and then tell that story. Yeah, they played a game and... (laughs) They played one of the first uh, intercollegiate games, like you said, out in California. Um, it was uh, late 1800s. Stanford team wins the game, I think, by scoring a basket, <laughs> you know. Um, but still, <laughs> it was a highly competitive, close game. And they come back to campus and they're heroes. And they're met by the student body and escorted, you know, from the train station back to campus. Uh, students, men and women, you know, singing songs and celebrating their success. And the response from the faculty at Stanford is to ban women's basketball. Um, And you see this happen over and over again. You know, even Margaret Wade, who's associated with the Wade Trophy, right? The most uh, esteemed uh, name, uh, the trophy that a women's basketball player can get these days. She played basketball at Delta State in the 1930s in Mississippi. They had a really successful team. And the response from the school was to shut down the team. Uh, And it wasn't brought back until she was named the head coach in the 1970s. There's always been this um, misconception perpetuated by men that, you know, we're shutting down uh, women's sports to protect the women, you know, uh, for either for for health reasons or that it's immoral for fans to be watching women sweat, you know, on the basketball court. And this is in the women's best interest. And really what's been um, that's been covering up is it's covered up men's own frailty, you know, and and and, 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 uh, insecurities. You know, if this women's basketball becomes too popular, like what does that mean for our men's program or what does that mean for our football program or what does this mean for our budget you know um and so it's really been i think more a case of uh, a little bit of uh, protecting turf that that men wanted to claim for themselves and threatened by success of of women's teams you see that throughout history 100 percent. and then there was another one where like the administrator shut it down because there were double headers between the men's and women's teams and they said they were sexual in nature (laughs) just like Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think they thought that men would show up for these games uh, with purient interest, you know, and watching the women on the court, you know, being at a time when like uh, women's sweating, being using their bodies, being physical, uh, maybe seeing part of their ankle, you know, or their leg uh, that was considered almost immoral that there would be men watching this game and that women would be performing for the entertainment of men in that way. Yeah. And so it was actually the uh, first lady uh, Hoover led a commission that uh, recommended that women's basketball be banned around the country uh, for that very reason. You know, the morality or the immorality of women playing basketball, particularly in these doubleheader games where there were men there to see the end of the women's game before the men played. 
It's just wild. It's ridiculous. It's wild. Yeah. And then the one other thing, I had never actually didn't really know much about this at all, um, but it seemed so important, which was the Fort Shaw Girls and the Fair Games. And I think it was 1904. Can you, uh, don't give away your whole book, but you know, just <laughs> <laughs> give yeah. away some nuggets. Uh, what, 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 was, what was that? Sure. You know, and since this book is about the first U.S. Women's Olympic team in 1976, I wanted to tell an anecdote in the book that there actually were women who played basketball at an Olympic venue way before this. So in 1904, St. Louis World's Fair also doubled as the Olympics that year. And there was a really uh, gross uh, racist exhibition at those Olympics, uh, at the World's Fair, where indigenous people from around the world were assembled as essentially a zoo uh, for fairgoers to watch, you know, uh, men and women from Africa or from uh, South America or uh, Native Americans um, in their quote unquote, natural habitat. And they also uh, had sporting events associated with that. And the whole purpose of this was, um, you know, it was called the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. So it was about manifest destiny and the white man's burden, all the, you know, the racist tropes of that time. And so they had um, sporting events to show the superiority of white athletes against these athletes of color from around the world who often were put in to competitions in sports that they had never even heard of before. So of course they were not going to do well. But, um, you know, this was a time of, um, you know, uh, Native American boarding schools uh, around the country, which we've heard so much about the horrors at those schools over the last couple of years. Uh, but Fort Shaw uh, School had a, a girls basketball team. And so then they were a good team. And the, there's, you know, different uh, feelings about these teams. On the one hand, they were established really to show the success of the assimilation efforts that were happening at these schools. They, they could say, look, we've taken these, uh, you know, Native American girls and we've taught them this game of basketball and, and cut their hair and put on the clothes of, of the white girls at that time, you know. At the same time though, the indigenous women on these teams saw basketball as a chance to show their own excellence, you know, and to succeed at something, despite whatever the reasons the white people had for putting them on these teams, you know, they, they could show they were great athletes and they could compete and they could beat anybody. And so they're brought to the World's Fair to demonstrate basketball, uh, playing against a team of um, white students uh, from St. Louis and expected to lose. Geronimo is there, you know, as a captive of the U.S. government watching these Native American uh, women play basketball and they want to play well in front of uh, Geronimo. And they crushed the St. Louis All-Stars twice. And so you could say, that the first American women ever to play basketball in the Olympics was a team from Fort Shaw. It wasn't a, a medal sport. It was a demonstration sport at those games. So it's not official, but really they were the first to uh, play basketball at an Olympics. And so I thought that was a fascinating story and wanted to share that history in the book. Absolutely. And like I said, I never heard that story and it's so important. And, uh, Another one of those moments where you just laugh at anyone who tries to separate politics and sports. Like, just tell oh, yeah, them exactly. that story right there. <laughs> like. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. 
Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So we kind of uh, going to skip forward a while. You know, there's all these years of AAU teams, the barnstorming redheads, you know, kind of the, the sport doesn't die down completely, but it's not organized at the upper levels, I think we could say. And then things start moving. And internationally, it's really, you're right, the Soviets who push uh, women's basketball forward um, and some Cold War politics. So how did they help get the Olympic, the women's basketball into the Olympics? They were kind of the driving force, right? Yeah, the Soviets were. They had been, um, you know, petitioning to the International Olympic Committee for decades to include women's basketball, uh, women's volleyball, basically the sports that were played only in the Olympics by men, but that women uh, were playing in the Soviet Union and other parts of the world. So I found uh, documents from FIBA of uh, the Soviets bringing up this issue. Let's vote on women's basketball at IOC meetings. Get shut down, shut down, shut down. Finally, in Munich in 1972, they vote to include it at the 76 Olympics in Montreal. One of the reasons the Soviets um, were interested in basketball beyond just having a, um, a lot of women playing it in their country is that they knew the United States was not taking international basketball very seriously. And so this would be an opportunity to beat the U.S. in the Olympics. And at the Cold War, you know, in so many sports, track, basketball, other sports, this was sort of a battleground, you know, to show the superiority of one system or the other uh, through sports. Uh, the Soviet team never lost. They were basically like the U.S. team is now, you know, international play. United States never loses anymore. The Soviets were that way back in the uh, 60s and early 70s. They actually had a seven foot two center named uh, Luzana Seminova that was the best, the most unstoppable player in the world. You know, they could lob the ball into her. She'd turn around and lay the ball. And um, they also had, uh, for hockey fans, Alex Jovechkin's mom uh, was on the Soviet team at that time. And I found a scouting report from the U.S. saying that she was the, uh, they called her the dirtiest player in the world. So maybe not too surprising that she'd have a son who would go on to play in the NHL. But um, yeah, it was the Soviets <laughs> who were, who were behind pushing for basketball to be included in the Olympics. And, and finally it came along uh, in 76 in Montreal. But so the U.S. is behind on this. In most places in the U.S., it was still a six-on-six -six game, half-court game. A am I right that that was just kind of a U.S. version? Like internationally, people were playing five versus five, right? And not the half-court game. That's right. Yeah. So this was part of what we were talking about earlier about this idea of protecting women, you know, so the the court divided in half and you in most high schools and colleges around the country, women either played defense or offense. You know, you were on one side of the court or the other. Um, and so that really held back uh, the American um, team, national team, when they would go play in things like the World Championships, the Pan Am Games uh, in years prior, because all of a sudden they were playing a full court game that most of them hadn't grown up playing. Um, 
It's one of the things that I think makes the players, I know we'll talk about them a little bit more specifically, but the women who were able to compete on the 76 Olympic team had overcome so many obstacles on the way to get there, you know, told that that they shouldn't sweat, they shouldn't build muscles, they shouldn't be competitive. If you're playing basketball, you should only play half court. You know, um, in many cases, it wasn't just men that were telling them this, but even, you know, women teachers and PE instructors who were teaching them the half court game uh, and telling them you shouldn't uh, be competitive against boys at school. They're never going to ask you out on a date, you know, if you beat them in a, in a foot race at recess. And Myers told me that she had that happen to her uh, in elementary school. Nancy Lieberman, who is one of the players on the 76 team, her mom really disapproved of her playing sports, wanted her to wear dresses, play with dolls, was upset when she'd see Nancy out playing football or baseball. And when Nancy would bring basketballs home, her mom punctured them with screwdrivers to keep her from dribbling. You know, so, so many uh, obstacles that they had to overcome, not just the opponents on the court, but, you know, society and very specific individuals, you know, trying to prevent them from playing. It's it's just wild to me. This history sounds like it should be so far gone, like so far <laughs> in the past. But the names you're mentioning, I mean, Ann Myers, like uh, Nancy Lieberman, Marianne uh, Crawford Stanley, who a couple years ago, the head coach of the Indiana Fever, right? And yeah. uh, Muffet McGraw was playing during this time. Like very much like this is this is recent history that things were this limited. And it's and when you put it in that context, it's just astounding how far like the game is gone because these women weren't willing to just settle for, you know, what they were told they should settle for. Yeah, I really feel like this generation, like you say, they're still with us and they're some of the most uh, esteemed names in women's basketball, whether they're, um, you know, still with us, like the women you mentioned, or Pat Head Summit was the co-captain of this team in yeah. 1976. So this isn't ancient history. Um, you know, and that gets to, uh, I was at a, a panel at Springfield College a couple weeks ago, you know, birthplace of basketball, and they were celebrating Title IX. And I was there with uh, Ann Myers and Julian Simpson, who were players on the 76 team. And then the panel right after us was um, uh, Tamika Catchings and Tina Thompson. And so uh, we were talking about inequities that still remain, but Tamika Catchings made the point, let's not just get bogged down in the inequities, but let's also talk about the, um, the great place that we are when you think about how new this all is. You know, like this Olympic team only played in 76, WNBA has only been around for 25 years. If you go back 25 years from the founding of the NBA, it wasn't nearly as popular as the WNBA is now 25 years after it was founded. You know, yes, there are inequities in terms of media coverage and salaries, but we're way ahead of the progress uh, that men's sports had made at a similar point in their development. Um, and I think a lot of that is because of the strength and the, uh, the will of these women that were these pioneers in the 1970s who still remain some of the biggest names in the sport. Even people who were cut from the team, like Marion Crawford Stanley's in the Hall of Fame, WNBA coach, she didn't make the 76 Olympic team. There's yeah. two, or th two or three women who didn't make the team that are Hall of Famers. I mean, so these was an, an incredible collection of people. And you talked about the very beginning, like I, I, th I agree, they're not as well known as a team because they didn't win gold, you know, and we only celebrate gold, <laughs> it seems like, but they had no chance of winning the gold compared to the Soviets that year. Weren't even supposed to make the Olympics at all. They hadn't qualified at the world championships the year before. And so winning the silver medal was a great accomplishment. And it was something that they were able to celebrate at the time. The way the tournament was played in 76, 
was just a round robin where whoever had the best record won gold, second best record won silver. It wasn't that we lost the gold medal game and had to settle for the silver medal. We won a game that gave us the silver medal. So it was a real celebration. So first of all, like it, the first kind of USA team that was put together was what, in 73 for the world? Yeah, World uh, University Games in Moscow. And we were so far behind at that point that I talked to Billy Moore, who was the head coach in 76. She was an assistant coach back then. And talking about Seminova, the, the Soviet center, she said their only goal when they played the Soviets was for Seminova to be dressed out in her uniform for the second half of the game because she was so dominant that the uh, Soviet coach would often just tell her to put on your street clothes at halftime. Like we don't want to embarrass our opponents anymore. And so when she came out against the U.S. in 73 and was still in uniform, the team erupted like they had won the game. You know, they were still getting killed, but but at least close enough that the Soviets kept their star player in her uniform. That's how far we had to come within three years. Incredible. And then the 1975 World Championships, was that the first World Championships for women's basketball or the first one that USA competed in? It was the first that we uh, competed in. And Kathy Rush was the head coach. She was the coach at Immaculata College at the time. Uh, which was a premier, yeah, <laughs> yeah a premier team in the country. I was winning uh, AIAW titles, and um, we came in eighth place. The only the top three teams in that competition qualified for the Olympics. Canada, as the host country, had the fourth bid, and so there were two more uh, spots open, and there was no guarantee that we were going to win one of those. Um, had to come in a top two in a last-minute tournament in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, just before the Olympics to even make it to the Olympics. And so Kathy Rush was uh, dismissed after um, World Championships, and then there was the Pan Am Games right after, which really just exhibition. And Billy Moore, who was the coach at Cal State Fullerton, was uh, elevated from assistant coach to head coach headed into the Olympics and actually headed into that qualifying tournament in Hamilton. She said there was quite a bit of pressure on her. You've been named U.S. national team coach, and your team hasn't qualified for the Olympics yet. Um, and so there, she led the training camp at Warrensburg, Missouri, where they invited the top 30 women in the country to try out for the team. Um, and then they competed in Hamilton and did win one. They won that tournament and uh, qualified for the Olympics. One important thing about that 75 World Championships team, you said uh, that it was kind of the first team that had black players playing for the United States on the world stage. Like, uh, first of all, am I categorizing that correctly? And then how did that come about like was that a fight um right so i think that i you know i wrote that in the book and i've since learned that i may be wrong <laughs> um, <laughs> unfortunately there may have, i think there was one black woman who had played internationally prior but this was the first world championships where we had um, multiple black players on the team there was a one black assistant that associated with the team at this time named bessie stockard who was the coach at federal city college in washington dc which is now university of district of columbia and I, I talked to her um, extensively about um, issues related to racism and selection of national teams prior to this. And what she, she told me, she felt like once it got down to the actual level of trying out for the team, that she felt like the process was fair. But what was significant was sort of the institutional or structural racism prior to that. Like, how did you learn that there were tryouts? Who nominated you to be at the tryouts, you know, um, that she has felt like affected the ability of black women to have that uh, opportunity before they got to the literal tryouts themselves. Uh, and so I think that's a significant insight to make. You know, there may have been individuals involved in Warrensburg, Missouri, including Bessie herself, selecting the team. And there were four black players named to the um, Olympic team in 76. 
but there just weren't that many opportunities for black women to even have that chance to try out. Um, HBCUs went through the same uh, or experienced the same social pressures as predominantly white schools in terms of dropping basketball during these ebbs and flows of, of history. And uh, predominantly white schools weren't recruiting black players for their basketball teams because this was an era before scholarships, you know. Um, and so there wasn't really an intentional effort uh, to bring black women uh, to campus for athletic opportunities at that point. And these schools weren't in many, many black students, period, uh, otherwise. And so those are the factors that kind of limited the funnel of, of black women who would even have a chance to try out for the team. Of course, one of the most prominent basketball players, period, and particularly black women in basketball is Lucy Harris, who, of course, just recently passed away, the queen of basketball. There's a great documentary on her. But tell us a little bit about her role in this team and what you learned about her. You know, I, I had a chance to interview Lucy Harris before she passed away. I was oh, working good. on the Yeah, which was a great uh, experience for me. Uh, unfortunately, it was just over the phone. This was during COVID, so I um, wasn't able to visit her. And this was also before the Queen of Basketball came out. So I, I hadn't seen that film when I interviewed her or wrote the book yet. But if people haven't seen it, like I couldn't recommend that short documentary more highly. It's free. Just Google Queen of Basketball. You can watch it. It's 20 minutes. Um, so she uh, grew up in the Mississippi Delta. She was from the same part of the state uh, where Emmett Till had been murdered when she was a little girl. She was from the same part of the state that Fannie Lou Hamer uh, lived in. She was from the same part of Mississippi Delta where Robert F. Kennedy visited uh, in the early 60s to, you know, witness uh, Southern poverty. And so this was a very poor part of the poorest part of the country. Um, her family had a basketball hoop in the backyard. She was one of, uh, I think, 11 kids and played with her siblings and neighbors. Um, her mom, you know, didn't really want her to play. She would watch games by putting a blanket over some chairs with a TV at night and hiding the fact that she was watching uh, NBA games on television. And she was picked on at school uh, for being tall. So, you know, like a boy in high school who's tall or strong or fast is going to be celebrated for that, you know, and be a star at their school. But Lucy was picked on for being tall. Her, t her classmates would say, long and tall, that's all, you know. And so she was made to feel uh, bad about the fact that she was uh, tall and a good athlete, a good basketball player. Um, and, you know, just the way the times were when she graduated from high school, she thought, well, that's the end of my basketball career. Uh, she was headed to Alcorn State where they did not have uh, women's basketball. Um, but at that same time, Delta State brought back women's basketball. So I mentioned uh, Margaret Wade had been a player in the 1930s when they shut women's basketball down. They finally bring it back just at the point that Lucy Harris is about to enter college. And so she is... Um, accepts the assignment really to be the first black player at Delta State when the team is reinstituted. Um, there's not a basketball scholarship, but they're able to cobble together some other sort of uh, financial aid and her parents are able to chip in. And so she goes to Delta State and is a pioneering player on the court, a pioneering student in, in the classroom, you know, and she talked to me about the, the loneliness that she experienced there, um, not particularly tight with uh, her teammates you know, one of the few black students in class. And so she would ride her bicycle home 20, more than 20 miles to tiny Minter City, Mississippi, uh, just for the comfort of being with her mom on weekends, you know, and imagine how dangerous it was for a black woman in the 19, um, late sixties, early seventies, riding her bicycle through uh, Mississippi Delta. You know, you don't know what sort of sheriff or police officer is going to stop you on the road, but you know, it was that important to her to just receive the comforts of home. But 
outstanding player, leads Delta State to national multiple national championships, player of the year, high scorer on the 76 Olympic team. And then she also had the distinction of being the first woman ever to score a basket uh, in Olympic basketball. So the U.S. played Japan in the first game of the tournament, the first tournament, uh, nine o'clock in the morning, which the players were not happy about having to play that early. But it did guarantee that the Americans played in the first game. And I talked to Julian Simpson, who was the co-captain with Pat Summit on that team and sort of the, the little fire plug of that team. And she said they were determined that we were going to score the first basket in that first game. And the Japanese got the, uh, the opening tip. They had the ball first. And Julian Simpson went flying down the lane to foul the Japanese guard as she was going in for a layup, fouled her hard. And her teammates were like, what was that all about? She's like, we can't let them score first. Uh, So the U.S. got the ball. They fed it to to Lucy Harris, and she scored the first basket. And and she was very proud of that and said that was something that, that nobody could ever take from her. That's incredible. What impact do you think this team had on where women's basketball is today? I think it had a huge impact. Um... In the locker room before the silver medal game, uh, Billy Moore sat her team down. And this is what I, story I tell in the first chapter of the book. And she said that, it, you know, if they were to win this game, their performance in this game was going to change women's athletics and women's basketball in particular in the United States for the next 25 years. And Billy told me that she said that because she had seen what uh, happened to gymnastics after the 72 Olympics when Olga Corbett sort of became this worldwide sensation through her performance in 72. And of course, she didn't know yet Nadia was going to really blow things up in, in 76 with her gymnastics. But yeah. she said after 72, you saw girls all over the world, and especially here in the United States, take up gymnastics. And it became really popular. And she felt like they could have that same impact by putting basketball on the map uh, as a team sport in particular here in the U.S. And so we talked about the decline of basketball here recently, but that wasn't the case after the 76 Olympics uh, the rates of girls and women playing basketball and the opportunities, thanks to Title IX, basketball really took off uh, high school and college level after these Olympics. But I also think this team had a big impact on other women's team sports. You know, at the time of the 76 Olympics, there wasn't a U.S. women's uh, national soccer team that was playing in a World Cup or in the Olympics. There was no women's World Cup. There was no women's soccer in the Olympics at that time. And so I think this 76 basketball team really laid the foundation for those other sports that in some ways have become even more popular, uh, you know? Um, so they had a tremendous impact on women's sports in this country. That's amazing. And, you know, I always like to ask authors, and this is a hard question, but is there anything kind of that's what surprised you the most in your research or, you know, any, any interview or nugget that really, uh, really stood out to you that you want to make sure to highlight? Oh uh, yeah. I'll mention two things. One, this probably shouldn't have surprised me, but in researching, uh, Title IX and the implementation period, just how strongly the NCAA fought it against it. You know, um, yes. you know. now we uh, see the commercials where the NCAA is celebrating this 50th anniversary, you know, as it should. But at the time, hiring lobbyists, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to fight it, the, co- the quotes that I found from athletic directors and football coaches at the time about how providing uh, equal or even any opportunities for women to uh, play college sports was going to mean the death of college football, the death of college sports, and just how openly and plainly they were saying that and how strong the, the effort was to kill Title IX. That it, it, was, shouldn't, it didn't necessarily surprise me, but the, the, the degree of it did surprise me. Um, the other thing I would say is I, since the book has come out, I've been pleasantly surprised 
by how much it seems to mean to the women on the team and the coach. Um, and in some ways it's, uh, it's, it's gratifying, but in other ways I feel like, well, they should have felt this way a long time ago. You know, they, they deserve to have their story told a long time ago. I don't know if I had written about the 1976 men's Olympic basketball team, if a book about their experience would mean anything to them, you know, uh, Billy Moore, Jillian Simpson, Ann Myers, uh, Marianne O'Connor, players on this team have told me that it means a lot to them. You know, they're, ha they're really proud that their story has been told, that it's out there for a new generation of girls and adults to read, you know, and their story hasn't been lost to history. And so that was a, a really pleasant, uh, poignant a surprise for me. That's phenomenal. I love that so much. And agreed, it's also a little sad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and frustrating. But, uh, well, Andrew, we've only kind of scratched the surface of all the phenomenal things in this book. So I hope that everyone does pick it up. And how can people follow you and support you? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So again, the title of the book is Inaugural Ballers. You can find it uh, your local bookstore. I always plug local bookstores first, but you know, it's also on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. There's a, an e-version of the book and uh, an audio version if you prefer those types of books. Again, I would rec say it's for adults and for teenagers if you have, you know, teen athletes in your family. Uh, you can find me, my website is my name, andrewmarinus.com. Uh, and on Twitter, I'm a Milwaukee Brewers fan, so this is an, a, a nod to the True Blue Brew Crew, but my Twitter is TrueBlue24 without the E, so T-R-U-B-L-U-24, and then Instagram is A Marinus. I never had asked what the True Blue uh, really meant, yeah. so I never knew, so now I do. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I signed up for Twitter, it was right when it started, and I didn't know if it was going to be this legit thing or not, <laughs> you know, so I, I didn't want to use my yeah. real name, and now I kind of regret that, but anyway... <laughs> I'm stuck say. with it. I'm sure your uh, book publisher loves that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You're kind of anonymous. anonymous yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, thanks again, Andrew. It was a great talking to you as always. All right. Well, thanks to you, Lindsay, to all your co-hosts and to all the flamethrowers out there. I really appreciate this. All right. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. We'll be back on Thursday with our weekly uh, roundtable episode. This was produced by Tressa Versteg. Shelby Walden is our web and social media wizard. We are part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Subscribe, listen, rate on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, tune in, wherever you get your podcast. Show links and transcript are on burnitalldownpod.com. And there you can also find a link to our merch at our bonfire store. And of course, patreon.com slash burn it all down is where you can become a donor of the show. Burn on and not out.